Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listeners, to episode 123. 123. Yes, that's incredible. Is, yes, of the Ad Nauseam podcast. My name is Dr. Jeff Winkle, and I am down here in the bunker, as always, with my good friend and co-host, Dr. David Noe. How are you feeling today, Dave? Yes, I'm feeling pretty well. So this is Vomitorium South, right? It is, yeah. We started out in the east, mm-hmm. uh, not in a basement, but well, the basement of a dentist's office. That's right, that's right. We moved to Vomitorium West. We were in a Lutheran school, an that's elementary right. school. Yep. Now we're in Vomitorium South. There's only one place we haven't been and are we are you scheduling a move are you, is no something behind this? <laughs> breaking news right there's no vomitorium north no but I, at some point i would like to hit all the cardinal i think we points. should yes, yes exactly. go right down the compass i'm feeling great yeah so i've been occupied the last week in a business ecclesiastical mm-hmm. and i uh, was out of state a little bit recovering from a, a cold and uh, i'm out of the woods on that thankfully yeah. But uh, summer is here, and uh, it's been great. So I'm you've been feeling doing a lot. Well. You're doing uh, quite a bit of traveling lately, and so it's going to pause for a long time. Thankfully, it's a, is it is it does it grind it grinds me down. Well, I'm as I get older, older I, yeah, exactly, it yeah. is less appealing. <laughs> for some strange reason, I would rather sleep at home in my bed next to my wife than yeah. in some strange place. I can understand that. Too. Imagine that. Yeah, right, right, right. right. Yeah. But how are you doing, Jeff? I'm feeling good. Yep, I, I love the I love the summer schedule. I get to I had a couple of days this past week where. I had to really think about it. Is this is it Tuesday? Is right. It oh, wow. Sorry. You're right. starting to lose the days. Exactly, right. Now, that might, I mean, maybe some of our nine to fivers out there don't want to hear that. But Probably not. But um, Rub it in, will you? When you have that kind of that educator schedule, mm-hmm. the, the summer days just kind of become, they become kind of, uh, they all kind of merge into each other. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Like, um, not unlike, I would say, the various interlaced connected stories in an Ovidian epic. Wow. That was nicely done. Was that nice? I like that. So uh, are you? we're talking about Ovid today. We are. Two more Ovidian vignettes. It's been a while, hasn't it? It has. We've gone to this well a couple of times? Two, no, I think times? three. Three times now, yeah. We talked about Atlas one time and... Um, yeah, some other stories. Um, Deucalion and Pyrrha. That's right. That's right. What do you, what do you know? Was the title of that one? Oh, yeah, that was a good one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, Ovid is that's the metaphors is so rich. Yes, more than two hundred and fifty uh, individual mythological stories. Yeah. So this, we will definitely be coming back absolutely after this. But today we're going to talk about um, two of my particular favorites: uh, the story of Arachne mm-hmm. and the story of Midas. That's correct. Right. I think I would guess that probably our listeners. Um, most of them probably would could be able to you know say give me a, a, like a three sentences to tell me the story of Arachne or Midas. I think probably many of them would be able to do it. I think so for right. sure. Arachne is very familiar because of the spider. People have right. this a fear, right? This arachnophobia. A lot mm-hmm. of people have a fear of spiders, and of course Midas with the golden touch. Right. That story was um, reprised by Nathaniel Hawthorne in the 19th century, reprised and expanded in his work, I think it's called Tanglewood Tales. And uh, in the Tanglewood Tales, there's a daughter in the Midas story. Mm. And so I think that one, the Hawthorne version, is the one that has been adapted for cartoons and other things. Where he touches his daughter. Yes, Yes, not not in the Ovid version. Um, And yet I think Hawthorne is responsible for how popular that particular version is. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, do we have an opening quote? We have an opening quote. But we, we don't do. have a shout out. We don't have a shout out. Okay. Right. I think people are still listening. I mean, it's an open question, uh, but they're generally not contacting us. 
I think that people are. I think our our listenership is. They're kind of humble. You think so? Yeah, they they don't. They're uh, unlike of, the get, the hosts, right? Exactly. Yeah, and so oh, I don't want attention called to me, right? right? But um, it's about the classics. It's not about me. You think that's what's driving this? I think that's what it is. But okay. at this, so I want to just again gently urge the, mm. the, the reader. We want. We really want to celebrate you. That's correct. Right. So send us an email. Um, uh, let us know who, who you are, what you're up to, and it doesn't have to have to do anything. Directly with classics. No. You know, if you enjoy the podcast, we want to hear about it yeah. and, and we want to tell other people about you. Right. We'll find a way to twist it in a classical direction. <laughs> exactly. Don't worry. But the opening quote. Yes. Uh, you have this one. The author is Julia. Uh, Julia uh, Hayduk. That's is, correct. Is the author. Um, and this is an article entitled Arachne's Attitude, uh, Metamorph- uh, Ovid's Metamorphoses uh, 625. Mm-hmm. So book six. Yep. And uh, what is it? Line 25? Yes. Right. Right. And this is an article that goes back to um, 2012. Mm-hmm. And I thought this was kind of interesting, um, in particular because Miss um, uh, Hayduk makes a connection to the Aeneid. Okay. And um, Boy, we spent enough time with that. We did. And um, she's certainly not the first one to to talk about the influence of Virgil's Aeneid on the metamorphosis. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think it's largely undeniable. Yes. But I thought this was, this was an interesting connection with the story specifically of Arachne. Now, before you actually read the quote, Jeff, I would like to hear you trying to pronounce the name of the journal in which this was oh. found. Um, Nemosine? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. That's a tough one. It Nemosine. Yeah. It takes yeah. a lot of... Uh, uh, courage, I think, to give your journal a title that's really <laughs> difficult to pronounce. That's a that's a journal that says we basically don't care if anybody buys. This exactly. <laughs> uh, and this one, right? This is the um, is it? A, she a nymph? Help me remember here. No, she's one of the muses, right? Whoa, whoa! I'm way off base here. Okay. No, no, she's the mother of the muses. She is a nymph who slept with Zeus. And uh, by her, Zeus fathered the nine muses. That's right. That's right. That's right. Okay. I have been traveling too much. <laughs> yes, man. My gotta... mind is shaken apart. Yes. All right. But uh, so shall I? Let's, shall we yes, into let's this? hear it. Okay. So um, the, the line in um, the Metamorphoses, book six, line 25, that um, uh, Hayduk is wrestling with is um, this one. Mm-hmm. And this is um, where Arachne has been. Um, uh, well, as we'll, as we'll talk about in the tale, uh, people are are saying, you know, you're really good at this weaving stuff, right. but you know, clearly you're influenced by Pallas, and mm-hmm. you got to give, you know, um, you know, do give credit where it's due. Yes, and um, and so this is the line where Arachne kind of, I don't know, it depends on how you read it, kind of snarkily responds. I think retorts. so. That's how I've always read it. Right, and so we'll get to a translation of it because uh, Hayduke gives it, um, but she writes. Um, Arachne's retort to the goddess, whose mastery she refuses to acknowledge, initiates a well-known series of events. Arachne ignores the warning of Minerva in disguise, wins the weaving contest, and is punished for her victory. All modern English translators understand the sentence to mean something like, let her compete with me. If defeated, there is no penalty I would refuse to pay. So that's what says. That's the typically way that, the way that line has been taken. Okay. Um, I propose, she says, quite a different translation of the second clause. There is no reason for me to refuse, comma, defeated. That is, to admit defeat by refusing to compete. Hmm. She says, this aligns better than the previous uh, translation with allusions to Virgil's Turnus, with Arachne's situation and character, and with the irony of her story's conclusion. Hmm. She goes on. In his memorable, memorable opening speech in Aeneid 12, which we just talked about just right. a handful of episodes ago, right? That's right. Turnus, like Arachne, audaciously uh, challenges an adversary whom divine backing makes invincible. 
And so now we get a couple of lines from the, um, the Aeneid. Nulla mora in turno nihil es quodica retractant, ignawi Aeneidae ne quae pepigere recusant congredior, hmm. which Heyduk translates as no delay in turnus. There's no reason for the Trojans, spineless, to take back their words or refuse the terms they've negotiated. I'm fighting. Mm-hmm. So you remember this where Turnus yes. is kind of, he's he's now kind of, uh, well, um, embracing his fate or kind of you know, giving into uh, the role that he has to play. Correct. Right. So Hedu continues, says, this, this instance of nihil es quod, plus the subjunctive, clearly can mean only there is no reason why. The echo of nihil es quod dicta retractant in Ovid's nihil es quod dicta recusum, with recusant appearing in Virgil's next line, makes it plausible to suppose that Ovid had the Virgilian passage in mind, especially if there are other links between Turnus and Arachne. In fact, such links, both at the verbal and thematic level, are so pervasive as to suggest that Virgil's doomed warrior is a primary model for Ovid's doomed artist. Well, that's really interesting. I, I thought it was interesting because that's something I'd never read or even right. thought about before. And so... We don't have to dwell on it, um, but I thought if as we go through this tale, if, if you know other kind of connections between Arachne and Turnus kind of um, jump into my mind or your mind, that mm-hmm. would be interesting to kind of expand upon. Definitely, yeah. I give her uh, high marks for her um, linguistic or philological sensitivity. I really like these arguments where um, an echo or a resonance is noted between two authors. Yeah. Now it's easy to over argue their significance. Sometimes it's just a phrase that stimulates the imagination and there's not a deeper thematic connection. Yeah. But sometimes there is a deeper thematic connection and it's definitely worth exploring. Right. I remember um, making these kinds of observations or dealing with these kinds of arguments in when I would teach the language classes. Right. And um, I thought a really good question, a legitimate question that would come up from the students um, often would like, you know, were these texts that well known? Mm-hmm. You know, um, we, you know, in a in a in a world where very few people were literate, right? Um, it could people have heard the, that line of Ovid and say, "Oh, I recognize that from the Aeneid." Yes. And the argument that I would often make um, in, towards saying yes, indeed, is um, you know, making an argument that you know in antiquity that was it was much more kind of a deeper kind of culture of memory right. than we can possibly imagine today. You know, where right. all you have to do is pull out your phone and look anything up. We we live in a in a in a in a, in a culture that doesn't prize memorization. Not at all. In fact, denigrates it. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that that um, it was just a different kind of landscape mm-hmm. of of memory mm-hmm. where I think that yeah, Abbott could do that, and someone who knew their Virgil would have recognized that. Correct. What, what do you, I mean, what do you think of that kind of that response? Well, I think it's entirely possible that okay. someone who knew Virgil could recognize an echo in Ovid. Uh, after all, this contemporary scholar, not a native um, Latin speaker, not, yeah. not immersed, was able to do so. So right. why couldn't an ancient? Right? Sure, sure, sure. But I think an, an, another answer, which is probably even better, is Ovid doesn't have to be sure that his audience would recognize the reference in order for him to make it and enjoy it. Right. Or for it to be persuasive, because... The same uh, thing that made Virgil's phrase memorable will make Ovid's phrase memorable, mm. even if the audience doesn't realize it's ripped off of Virgil. Right, right. Here's an example. I was watching the great Coen Brothers movie Raising Arizona. Yeah, one of my favorites. Yes, I've seen it a few times. I watched it with a new audience several weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Many of the lines in that um, movie are taken from Shakespeare. Mm. There are a number of Shakespearean allusions and references. And why it's so funny is because it's they're spoken from the mouth of this ne'er-do-well, you know, um, what's his name again? 
Uh, it's Nicholas, played by Nicholas, Nicholas Cage. Cage. Yeah, I'm forgetting that character. Is it High? I think it's High. Yeah, I yeah, think yeah. That's his name, yeah, right? Yeah. And um, if you know that they they are Shakespearean lines, it's all the more enjoyable. Right. But the enjoyment is still there, even if you don't know. Right. Exactly. It's just, and the joke works. It um, the level of, the the deeper levels of enjoyment. It's a reward to those in the know. Correct. Yeah. And so the Cohen brothers, I think, are partly writing for themselves. Of course. And while in one sense you can see that as kind of selfish. When done properly, it's the most enjoyable. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. when a painter includes in his portrait, you know, um, some in, in his painting, some kind of reference to another painter. Yes. That, that's very satisfying when you notice. That. Yes, exactly. I, I love that kind of stuff. Yes, I do, right, too. Right? And I don't I don't find it. Um, I, I know some some might dismiss it as kind of game playing or just kind mm. of or just kind of showing off like, you know, how how literate one is, you know, visually or, or verbally. But, yeah, uh, it can be that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ovid's certainly guilty of that sometimes, right? It's certainly. it's just an exercise in his geographical and mythological brilliance. Exactly. Look what I can do. Right. But right. we get to witness it because right. I can't do it. So Exactly. And and then this kind of stuff from this article here, I don't see it as anything more than uh, a tip of the hat. Absolutely. Right? He's not trying to outdo Virgil. No. Right? He's, but um, I, I find it very persuasive that he's definitely tagging mm-hmm. Virgil. Yep. So we go into the setup then and the context of Arachne. Jeff, can you get us started with that? I think I would like you to get us started with reading, oh. some, reading some Latin. How about okay, that? Okay. So yeah. which, which book are we in this, right now? These are the very opening lines of um, book uh, six. Okay, here yes. we go. Praebu erat dictis Tritonia talibus ordres. Carmina qua onedum justam que probaverat irdram. I slipped up there. Tum se cum laudardra parest laudemur et ipsi. Numina nec sperni sine poina nostra si namus. Nicely done. Thank you. All right, now before I'm going to give a, a, a translation of those lines, what really struck me as I was reading um, a translation of these of the story was um, very often in my myth class, I'll, I'll talk about Arachne when I'm introducing Athena. And I'll reference the story, and I'll give it, you know, maybe five minutes okay. as kind of an example. Now, is, that, is that because it's so familiar I think already? It's familiar, but it's also just kind of, it's a matter of, there's so many other things I want to cover. And so, you know, I'll give kind of this very kind of brief thumbnail sketch, and I say, well, yeah, this is a story about hubris, and and um, there are lots of tales like this. I mean, right. you do another kind of, a, a few um, comparanda. Um, and then I'll I'll move on. Mm-hmm. But I was, as I was reading the details of, of Ovid's version of the story, this it's way more nuanced mm. than just simply oh yeah, human being hubristic, and here comes Nemesis, and they're they're punished right. for it. There's a lot more going on. That that's how I usually tell the story. Also, the way that you initially described uh-huh. is that I tell the story of Arachne when I'm um, going through the list of the twelve Olympians. Right? Yeah. So here's Athena. And here are the most familiar stories from Athena. Yes. You know, sourcing some from the tragedians, sourcing it from Ovid. And that's where I've always put Arachne in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Likewise. Yeah. But yeah, maybe exactly. she deserves a little more time on stage for her own sake. I think so. I think so. And so um, if you look at the very end of book five, mm-hmm. um, we have uh, Minerva's involved once again, although not directly. She's, she's um, just witnessed a, a song contest. Uh, between uh, the Muses and the Daughters of Pyrrhus, the Pyrrhides. Right. And um, Calliope steps up to represent the Muses, and um, the Daughters of Pyrrhus, they sing a song. Is this that, like American Idol? Is that what's going on? It is on? kind of like that, exactly. So they step up, and they, their song they choose is one that's critical of the gods. It makes ah. the gods look, look, look ridiculous. Um, they lose the contest to Calliope, and they are turned into magpies. Mm. And so the story is framed 
um, that says, well, why are these daughters, why are they birds now? Well, let mm-hmm. me tell you the story. I mean, it's a very common Ovidian conceit, right? Yes, it's remarkable, as just a side note, how often persons are transformed into birds in yes. the metamorphoses. Yes, it's true. That was the most striking aspect to me when I first read the story. Yeah. Uh, because we think of, I don't know, changed into mammals. That seems a little more natural. Right. But changed into birds. Into birds. Yes. yes. I once knew a child, a very small child, who said to me, this is going to give it away. Daddy, I don't like birds. <laughs> and I said, why not? They don't have people faces. <laughs> I like that. Isn't that astute? It is astute. Because when you look at a mammal, it's got a roughly people face. It does. It's true. Right? A right. dog has a roughly person face. Interesting. My wife would love to hear that story. She, she has, what would what, what, what be... Aviophobia, yeah, or, or, ornithophobia. Ornithophobia. She, she has always been a little, a very leery of birds. I can understand. And I wonder that. is it because they, because they don't have people. They faces. don't have people faces. They're, kind of They're creepy. Yes, and don't forget their lineage. You know, people tell us they were once dinosaurs. Oh yes. I don't know if that's true, but yeah. I'm just waiting for one of them to, you know, go tear, tear go t- into me. Go pterodactyl on exactly. you. Exactly. <laughs> you, you can't really trust a bird. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Anyway. All right. So um, I thought this was interesting because I. Whenever I tell the story of Arachne, I never consider what came before and what right. came after in the book. It's just dropped down in there right. as the story of Athena. Right. So in Minerva has already heard this story, um, which is very similar to Arachne. Arachne, as we'll see, she weaves, she doesn't sing a song that's critical of the gods, but she weaves pictures mm. right, that are critical of the gods. And, um, and so the story starts, these lines that you just read in Latin, um, I thought this was interesting as kind of a setup to the story. And so this is A.S. Klein's translation okay. of, um, of this. Um, he has a wonderful translation of the Minerva you can find on, on the internet. Uh, Klein writes, Tritonian Minerva had listened to every word and approved of the Aeonian Muses' song and their justified indignation. And then she said to herself, to give praise is not enough. Let me be praised as well and not allow my divine powers to be scorned without inflicting punishment. So I just thought this was interesting is that Minerva, before the whole Arachne thing starts, she's kind of primed to... Um, to take offense. To take offense. Mm. Right. And so... Th- she's got a chip on her shoulder, yes. we would say. And I thought that casts... I mean, you can, as you can as you can always do, you can always make too much of these kinds of things, mm-hmm. right? I think um, I'd be really... I'm going to be interested to hear what you kind of think, what you think this story is really all about. Yeah. Well, first uh, I'm disturbed by that expression. What? A chip on on her shoulder. You don't you don't like that expression? Well, where did that come from? I don't know. Where does she that was come? going through the nacho bar and <laughs> didn't quite make it too out. Little, too a little aggressive. A little too aggressive, <laughs> and now she's got a chip on her shoulder. Right, and she's mad because she didn't get to eat all the nachos. I don't know that, what it is. Very interesting. But it means quick to take offense. Yes. Right. Right. Um, having a what a light trigger. Right. Yes. Going off too easily. Yeah. Exactly. So she doesn't come in. And so you know, as I've often, as I realized when I've kind of told the thumbnail version of the Arachne story, I don't present it with, well, you know, Minerva was, well, she just came in all innocent, right? Yes, and the, yeah. Oh, and, and who, and how dare this young lady, right? right. But that's I've not, told it that way too, and I wonder why. I don't, I don't know either. But when, if you read Ovid, it's in many ways, it's very sympathetic to Arachne. Yes, it is. And it's, it's set up with kind of Minerva as this hothead, just ready to go. I have a theory. It, yeah. it could be that as Christians, we are inappropriately inclined to give the deity the benefit of the doubt. Because we are so accustomed to thinking of our God as the just and righteous and merciful person that He is, right? But that is not how the um, that is not how you know Ovid saw the Greco-Roman gods, right? Right. So they were often villains and villainesses in this story. Yes. So maybe that kind of shaded my that's interesting perspective a little bit. Whereas I should have been paying more attention 
Athena is really looking to be offended and Arachne was in some ways entrapped. Right, right, right. Yeah. No, I think that that's very, that's very well said. I, I find that like when I teach Homer and I think even, you know, many of my students, even most of my students uh, don't come from any kind of religious tradition, hmm. but they come with kind of this assumption that, well, whatever the gods want must be quote unquote moral. Correct. Right. They see the gods as kind of that, that they're the, the foundation stone. Yep. For what should or not should not be done. That's once again an inheritance of Platonism. Yes. and Christianity. Exactly right. But in um, in Homer and Ovid, no, nope. no, it's not there. Hmm. All right. So yeah. So Minerva, she's she's primed for judgment. She's ready. She's got that big old nacho on her on her shoulder, right? <laughs> and so, um, so just that in and of itself, it kind of it raised these these questions, which I think are so interesting. So you know, what are what are we to ultimately make of these stories where? Uh, the humans consistently paint the gods as unjust. I think there's a lot in this story that you mm. can see that, okay, okay, maybe she steps over the line here, but what about all this other stuff? But the way she steps over the line is trying to be the best weaver Yes, and weaving a tapestry that's a little bit um, salacious. It, it's it's true. I think that you but, get... But is, how objectionable is that? And then, but you could, I think you would, um, it strikes me that, um, you know, when she's she falls into this contest... Like today we would say, oh, that's entrapment, mm-hmm. right? You know, so did, did she really know what she was getting into? Right. And so it, again, what, and I realized when I tell the story, when uh, Arachne agrees to this contest, I always tell that, well, she knows exactly who she's dealing with. Right. She doesn't care that it's Minerva and she does it anyway. And that's not really what's in the story. Right. So um, to contextualize it, let's yeah. say, you know, I'm trying to refrain from eating unhealthy things. Yes. But someone puts in front of me a big plate of Doritos, you know, smothered in Velveeta and American cheese. Right, right. With a side of guacamole and sour cream. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. What are you going to do? What am I going to do? <laughs> Is that really fair? Right. Exactly. Okay. Exactly right. No, I think that's I think that's right on here. Um, so when Arachne is introduced, we learn that she's um, she comes from a poor family. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have kind of a, a strong heroic family legacy. Her mother has been long dead. See, this is what to me is interesting about Arachne is that she she could not be a candidate for a tragedy. I don't think you would find her. Now, you know, I could well be wrong and I may be forgetting a Sophoclean tragedy entitled Arachne. Uh-huh. But what distinguishes the characters in those tales is that they are nobility. They are yes. themselves defended, uh, descended from the gods. Yes. They're not nobodies, commoners like Arachne. Right. Exactly. So that that should kind of provoke some sympathy from us. Yes. From the start. I think so, too. Right. And it also kind of falls into kind of a broad comic construct. Right. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of. Into describing Arachne as well, you could describe Eumaeus in a similar yes. kind of way. The fact that they're poor and humble. This is the swineherd from uh, books 14, 13, and 14 following of the Odyssey. Of the Odyssey, right? And so there's that kind of that broad comic conceit that where do you find the salt of the earth? It's yep. amongst the poor. Mm-hmm. Right. It's just, she's not a tragic heroine. She doesn't have kind of a, a position of status that she needs to fall from, right? And so um, she's... Uh, uh, she comes from a very humble household. Her father is a is a weaver as well, mm-hmm. um, and she's slowly making a name for herself through her skill. But she's not out there trumpeting. Look how great I am! Right. And so I thought, okay, that's a much that's a setup that I do not give when I tell that story from memory. Now she's making um, scarves and napkins and uh, what teapot cozies and so forth. She's got an Etsy store. Yeah, <laughs> probably Ex- exactly. Maybe she went door to door selling potholders at the beginning, right. but you know she's making good now. Right, right, right. Yeah, she's just a humble girl. Exactly. Right. Um, and so uh, we learn that um, you know the, the the people, the townspeople, they I mean they marvel at her skill, 
And they say, well, clearly she's been taught by Pallas, mm-hmm. is the line. And so I thought there was a lot of, of, of stuff in, in this passage that I thought, um, it, how do I interpret this, mm. right? Because um, everything that Ovid gives us suggests that, well, no, not literally, she's not been taught by Pallas. Right. Or could you say that just anybody who's good at weaving is taught by Pallas? I think that's the convention. Is that the convention? And, um, and if you're especially good at something, you must have divine guidance. Okay. But from from a literal point of view, Arachne's saying, no, she didn't teach me anything. Mm-hmm. But I, I guess she's not recognizing, you know, uh, she's good at weaving you, so you have to kind of, you know, tip the hat to the goddess. You have of, to. Of, you have to. Right? So I think the NBA finals concluded recently. I don't know. Is that true? I haven't been following it. I think. Okay. I, I but there was some basketballing there recently. There was definitely been some basketballing. Yes. And if someone was really great, you know, that you might say, wow, that, that guy's another Jordan. Yes. Right? Or he's the son of Jordan. Or <laughs> right, right. he's, uh, you know, he's breathing the, the Jordan inspiration, something yes. like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Whether or not he ever really had any contact, you know, with a supposed goat. Right. Uh, that's the connection. Right. You recognize the, the shoulders of the giants that you're standing. Right. Right. So can I read a little bit of the, um, the Ambrose translation? Yes, please, please. This is, uh, the Focus Classical Library, and this is the Z. Philip Ambrose, uh, by Hackett, by the way, cough, cough. So with this, she, meaning, um, Minerva, turned her attention to Myonian Arachne's fate, who in the art of working wool, she had heard, would not cede pride of praise to her. In neither status nor family origin lay her fame, but in her art. Her father was Idmon of Colophon, who died with Phocaean purple, the spongy wool. Her mother had died, a woman herself of humble folk, just like her husband. But the girl had, through the Lydian towns, acquired a memorable name for herself, even though she lived in little Hippipa and came from a simple home. In order to see her admirable work, Timolus's nymphs often left their olive groves. The nymphs of Pactolus often left their stream. The joy was not only in looking at the cloth she wove, but also at how she made it. So great was the grace of her art in rolling the raw wool first into balls, or shaping the mass with her fingers and softening the wool by adding more and repeatedly stretching it to look like clouds, or turning the rounded spindle with her lightly moving thumb, or adding designs with her needle. Taught by Pallas... You might suppose. You might suppose. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. That, nice. I like that translation. That's been good. Been a while since I've looked at the Amber. Yeah. yeah. It's a little different than um, Lombardo. It's not quite as, uh, I would say, terse and rapid. Um, I would say it's a more expansive translation. Right. But very nice. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, good. And so it's when it's when the townspeople start to kind of say, hey, listen, you got to, you know, give credit where credit's due. Mm-hmm. Um, this is where we get the line from our opening quote, where um, uh, Klein translates as, uh, Arachne says, "Well, you know, contend with me, like, like, bring it on. Right. I will not disagree at all if I am if I am beaten. Right. Right. And it even struck me um, that um, is is Arachne like d- directly challenging the goddess? There is that hubris. Is, you're is saying? She, or is she just saying, hey, if anybody's better, show me, and I will happily concede mm. defeat to anyone who can do this better. But is it conceivable that she could be better at anything than Minerva?" I, my, my, I guess what I'm asking is that, um, is that is, is she even talking about Minerva mm. there? Um, so I, it's just, it just seemed... It's in the context of when people say she was taught by Pallas. I guess so. So, so maybe. Right. Okay. All right. I'll grant that. I was, I mean, I ultimately, I'm not going to try to make some kind of modernist reading of this. Right. Yet, you know, uh, Arachne is this. As you did with the end of the Aeneid. Oh, did I do that? Oh, oh you were so, revising so, all over the landscape. Really? It was just kind of, I was, just, <laughs> I was, I was scat, scatting and bebopping yes, all over the place. Yes, you were. <laughs> Jeff, revisionist Winkle. <laughs> I'm not going to go there. Th- okay. Here. All right. Um, 
So anyway, so, so Pallas, uh, uh, Minerva comes down. She disguises herself as an old woman. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of stories in Ovid that, that, that the gods do this kind of thing, right? And um, she encourages Arachne. says, yes, you know, you're very good at that. And, you know, in, and, and follow this. You know, clearly you've got some skill here. Um, but she also says, don't forget who's the goddess of this. Right. And it says, ask for forgiveness and, and she will grant it. Mm-hmm. And I just thought this was interesting, you know, thinking about the way that I usually tell this story, is that Arachne does not know that this old woman is the goddess. Right. Yeah. And so um, at, I think that's, at the very least, a small mitigating factor in okay. this, right? So now so now you're a musician, right? A guitarist, mm-hmm. piano, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if any of your sons are uh, interested in music. They are, yeah. Okay. And you've probably even cultivated that interest and encouraged them and helped them to, Absol- to the extent that they like. Yes. If one of them started to get really good, mm-hmm. right, and wasn't quite at your skill level, but thought that he was, mm-hmm. right? Hey, Dad, you know, can you, can you play this and then... You might, you might feel some urge to kind of put him in his place a little bit because you spent how many years perfecting your craft, Yes. right? But there would come a time probably where you would be genuinely happy that he had outshone you. Yes. But not quite yet. Right. He's right. got to actually prove it. Yes. Okay. I just wonder if, if hmm. that kind of uh, dynamic is at work in Athena, Minerva, yeah. at all. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't, I don't think she would be genuinely happy. To be bested. No. And uh, and I think even in, in Ovid's version here, you could make the argument that she is bested and oh, she's not happy about that's it. That's right? right. Right. Exactly. No, I, I like that analogy a lot. Right. So, um, I mean, all I'm saying is here is that in reading this version carefully and in detail, there was a lot of stuff there that I yes. thought, you know, brought my a lot of my sympathies around to Arachne more so than in the way that I usually tell the story. I agree with that okay. completely because right. I think we have told it from the same perspective uh, right. in the past. Yes. So um, here I'll give Klein's translation of what follows. So, so, the, um, so again, Minerva, as the old woman, says, hey, you know, uh, ask for forgiveness and the goddess will, well, she'll, she'll be okay with this. Okay. So Arachne looked fiercely at her and left the work she was on, scarcely restraining her hands. And with dark anger in her face, Pallas, disguised, it is true, received this answer. Weak-minded and worn out by tedious old age, you come here and having lived too long destroys you. Let your daughter-in-law, if you have one, let your daughter, if you have one, listen to your voice. I have wisdom enough of my own. You think your advice is never heeded? That's my feeling too. Why does she not come herself? Why does she shirk this contest? Mm. Okay, so now she's starting to... She's demonstrating some okay actual yeah. hubris. Right. She doesn't know. This is why Klein says, um, disguised it is true. She doesn't know she's speaking to Minerva directly. Right. But she is. She is. Exactly right. right. In the grand scheme of things, in relationships between the gods and humans... It doesn't matter yeah. if you know who you're talking to or not. This is this is crossing a line. Right. So okay. since I seem to be the um, the pop culture guy today, yeah, I'm the Johnny Pop. Yeah, big time. Joey Pop. I'm, I'm I'm enjoying it. Yes. All right. Have you ever seen the uh, reality TV show Undercover Boss? Uh, yes, I have. Yes. yes, yes. Some of those are pretty funny. That's what you got here, yes. right? Arachne shows up right at the the sock weaving store. Right. Not Arachne. Uh, Athena, Athena Minerva. Yeah. And there's one of the employees right complaining about the boss <laughs> yes. to the boss. Yes, exactly. And uh, you know it's it's comic. You know the way that the show works here. It's tragic. Right. Because um, Minerva has no grace. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. That, 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 that's the. You just described the seeds of a great parody. Yeah. Wouldn't that be? <laughs> but you're right. So Minerva is, is the undercover boss here. Right. And the employee is just letting the boss have it. That's correct. Without knowing what they're, who they're talking yeah. to. Right? You think your advice is never heeded? That's how I feel. Yeah. Why doesn't she come here herself? Yeah. Come on. Right. Mm. Okay. 
So the hammer's about to drop. That's right. All right. So then Minerva reveals uh, her, herself. And then I think, I mean, so then Arachne, she's, you can't take those words back, right? No. She, she has no choice but to kind of, okay, it's, mm-hmm. we're going to throw it down. Yep. And so Minerva goes first and she's weaving. And what she weaves are pictures of of, of, of the gods as foundations of civilization and, yes. and justice and goodness and, and, and order. And A so, highly selective retelling. Yes, exactly. Of divine history. Yes, right. Um, Do you want about, me to read some lines? I want a little more Latin here. This okay. starts. A, this is a line seventy through seventy-five. Yeah. So, book six. Cecropia palas capaluma wortis in arca pinget et antiquam de terrae nominalitem bis sex caelas teis medio sedibus altis augusta gravitatis adent sua quemque de ordum inscribit facies iovis est regalis imago. Nice. All right, let me give Ambrose translation of those lines in a, a little bit more. Cecropian Palace depicts the rock on the hill of Mars, as well as the ancient dispute about the name of the land. With Jove in the middle, twice six celestial beings with solemn mien are seated on their lofty thrones. Each face is inscribed to show which god it is. Royalty is seen in the image of Jove. She makes the god of the sea stand with his long trident strike the rugged rocks, and out of the midst of the blow to the rock, a spring has sprung forth, a pledge with which he would claim the town. But to herself, she gives the shield, gives the sharp cuss spear, the helmet for her head, defends with her with the aegis her breast, and shows the earth smitten by the cusp of her spear, bringing forth the shoot of the olive tree, graying with fruit, and marveling gods and victory at the end of her work. Hmm. So she shows um, some distinctly Athenian themes. Yes, right? so her we have, contest with Poseidon. Yep, and the the establishment of the Areopagus. Yes, um, as a you know as a uh, as a court. And then, um, of course, herself as kind of an image of, of with the gift of the olive, bringing civilization mm-hmm. uh, to the people of Athens. It's all very, as you say, very selective and very positive. Yes. Yes. Uh, like most autobiographies, right? Yeah. When you write your autobiography, The Winkle Years. Yes. What's going to be in there? Well, um, it's going to be warts and all. Really? Um, yes, exactly. Nobody wants to read that. Yeah. Well, no, you do. You, you, know, know, you have actual warts like well, on your, your feet or something. You're going to include photos of that. You know how most books have a... A yeah. part in the center where there are photos. Yeah. Right. We're going to turn to that and it's going to be photos of your warts. Yeah. They'll be black and white. They'll take, you know, take some of the edge off. Right. <laughs> but no, I don't want to see that. Since you brought it up. Yeah. Right. Um, I was reading a, a biography that was very, it was highly recommended to me Uh-oh. Uh, because of my interest in music and pop music. Yes. And this is the autobiography by, do you know who Dave Grohl is? I do. He was yeah. the drummer for Nirvana. Now he's the Foo he, Fighters guy. Yes, he came on after music had died uh, <laughs> in 92, 92-ish, 93-ish. Yes, right, right. Okay, okay gotcha. Right, so, so, I, so I, let's see how you feel about Mr. Yeah. Grohl. Okay. Well, I'm a fan. Okay. I, I, I like him very much as a, as a musician and as a personality. So he, was, he grows on you after he, a while? <laughs> exactly. Right. So I was very much looking forward to it. And I, I know a lot about his life just yeah. from stuff I've read. And I was You've look- been peeping in the windows, I so to speak, been, for yes. a couple decades. So I was looking forward to kind of having his take on some yeah. of these, these seminal events in his life. And most of these events where it gets ugly and, and tragic, he glosses over in a sentence or two. Mm. And then it's on to, look how, look how many famous people I know. Oh, yeah. I can't believe I'm hanging out with ACDC. Right. I'm at the White House. <laughs> And it was so boring. Here I am at the beach. Here I am at the beach. Yeah. Look at that. Oh, is that Paul McCartney? Oh, did we're you get just hanging your, out. Did you get your money back? I, it was. A, I got it from the library. I'm okay. glad I did not buy the book. But I thought, I don't want to. This is this is no good. When I read an autobiography, I want the warts. You want the dirt. I want the, I want the dirt. You okay. know, I, 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 lay yourself bare. Mm. Right. So. So Athena doesn't do that. No, she does to not. To bring it back. No. It's all a very rosy exactly. retelling. It's very much like Grohl's yeah. autobiography. Of a, Athena and her wonders. Right. 
Now, Arachne's work is also selective, but yes. in the, the other direction. Now, this is where I think she shows either tremendous courage or tremendous <laughs> foolishness. Right. And I have this feeling that we have talked about this a little bit before somewhere on the podcast. I don't, we've, we've never devoted a whole episode to Arachne, have we? No, no. Yeah. Gasp. Yes. <laughs> but I think we've talked somewhere. We've talked about I'm this. sure she's come up yeah. somewhere. Um, because we've talked about these themes before. Of course, right? the deadly... No, this is not the deadly wish. This is hubris ne- uh, meets hubris nemesis. Hubris meets nemesis. Right. But, I mean, there's part of it. Like It's almost like Arachne says, well, I realize that when Minerva reveals herself, she, she probably thinks, I'm done for. I'm done for. So why not just go all in? Go out with a bang. <laughs> exactly right. Right. It's like, it's like in Seinfeld when, uh, when Costanza, you know, getting fired, he says, I want people to say, that guy got canned. Right. right? <laughs> So Minerva's going to give a selective retelling. Here is the expose. Right. Here's the truth. Yes, and it's 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 it is phenomenal how condensed this is. And so 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 is I'm just going to ask. So yeah. are you going to write the real story of Dave Grohl and pick out those spots and just put all the dirt in there? Somebody has to. Okay. All right. It's just it was it's just, not going to be you. It's not it's not going to be me. But uh, that's a uh, that's a project waiting to happen. Okay. Right. So um, Avid he uh, devotes 24 lines to Arachne's tapestry. And in those 24 lines, he describes uh, 21 acts of rape. Mm. Um, Jupiter, uh, nine acts. Neptune, six acts. Apollo, four. Bacchus, one. And Saturn, one. Mm. And um, which I think is a really, like a, a really striking retort to, is remember Athena, she basically, she t- she wove something about Jupiter, about Neptune and herself. Yes. And so. Paragons of virtue and order. Right. Blessing mortals and bringing them peace and happiness. Right. Exactly. So, um, so I think that, you know, he, uh, erecting response is, well, look at what Jupiter's done nine times. Look what Neptune's done six times. And I think Apollo is kind of a masculine stand-in for Athena, you know, god of the, of the city, mm. right? And she, if she's going to keep it to the theme of uh, sexual violence, um, she's going to, these are going to be um, male figures, right? Yep. And then Bacchus once and Saturn once. Uh, it's a. It's not just describing the these these detestable acts of the gods. It's a direct response to the other side of the coin of what, what Minerva has just woven. Exactly. Yeah. And she uh, weaves it in real time. Yeah. Which is impressive. <laughs> Very impressive. And I don't understand much about tapestries or much about anything, but the little that I do understand is that when you weave a tapestry, you have to have a couple of threads at the beginning, but the whole picture, you know, you've got to introduce threads whose uh, presence in the picture won't be obvious until you get to the end. Yeah. So there's a tremendous amount of foresight. Yes, exactly. That is required in putting something like this together. It boggles the mind how anybody could do that. Yes, it does. Yes. I'm boggled. Yep. Uh, not raccoed, but, <laughs> but, but boggled. boggled. Right. <laughs> and as the picture emerges, you can imagine how Minerva is responding, right? Because it, it slowly emerges like a Polaroid. Yes. That's slowly. It's, you're shaking it. Exactly. Right, 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 right. And when you see what's there. Oh my goodness. Boy, she's upset. She's, she's, she's horrified. Um, it, but Ava tells us that even when it's done, Minerva, even Minerva herself can't deny this is the brilliance of the work. I don't think Ava comes out and says basically Arachne's tapestry was more skilled, but I think it's deeply implied. Mm-hmm. And so, but so Minerva's kind of she's 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 stunned by it. So there's a note here that you wrote that yeah. Arachne's world is chaotic, unpredictable, and and chaotic. Yes, yeah. So it, it, again, as a, as a counterbalance to the ordered. You know, just world hmm. that Minerva has has, shed, has has shown. So not only is it is, is it a retort in terms of the the characters, the figures that she mentions, but the the world that she depicts is one of of violence and disorder. Hmm. And in some ways, she's kind of foreshadowing what's about to happen to herself as well, right? 
So um, Minerva can't deny that that um, Arachne has produced something brilliant, um, but that doesn't stop her from picking it up and tearing it in half. And this was a detail that I'd forgotten about, is that um, she grabs the shuttle off the loom yes. and actually beats Arachne over the head with it three or four times. Yeah, it's a heavy piece of wood. Yes. In fact, it's uh, I was looking for it here in the Latin. It's boxwood, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. I'm looking for the Latin. Um, I may not be able to find it in time. Uh, but boxwood is what uh, chess pieces are made well, of. Is that right? Yeah, they're very heavy, extraordinarily dense. Okay. So to get hit with a piece of boxwood is just awful. It's a serious weapon. Exactly. Right. And um, this is where Arachne breaks, and she's so distraught that she um, she attempts to, to to kill herself. She fashions a noose, and she's about to hang herself. Um, Ovid tells us that Minerva stops her out of pity, um, and then using some magic borrowed from Hecate, this is where she famously um, sprinkles it on Arachne. This is where she turns into a spider. Mm. And so we have, again, a, a part of the function of the story. It's an etiology, right? It's, yep. it's, why do spiders weave webs? Well... It goes back to the um, you know this this um, um, the best of, of all human weavers, um, and Minerva says, okay, go on, go. You can live, you can go on weaving, but don't you dare any of your descendants, don't you dare make this mistake again. Right, live, girl, live and hang. Right? Yes, yes, hang forever. Yes, exactly. Right, and so um, I think definitely the story is another one of these textbook. Yes, uh, human being crosses the line. Hubris meets nemesis, and it ends in this very kind of clever. Um, etiological kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it made me wonder is that, you know, um, is Ovid coming down on a particular side? Is he saying, on the one hand, yes, the gods are powerful and they deserve our, our due, but on the other hand, they can be really horrible too. And mm-hmm. those things just kind of hang there together. Yes. It's not like one side is right and the other side is wrong. Uh, that's what I think he's saying. Okay. And I think I've made the claim before in previous episodes, and I, I think I can defend it, that um, unlike Virgil, Ovid is going back to, and I think actually Brooks Otis supports this idea. Ovid is going back to to an Homeric viewpoint, mm. not not a, a moral civilized world that Virgil is representing. Yeah, where um, Jupiter and Juno finally reconcile, and, right. and they behave as virtuous imposers of a moral order. Right. No, Ovid's going right back to Homer. Yeah, but it's uh, it's for comedy. Yes, and I wonder if this is one of those things that. Um irritated Augustus about Ovid. I mean, this is, oh. you know, is you know part of, you know, Augustus' kind of moral program that yes, he's trying to could institute. Be. I mean, you don't see anything of that kind of that notion of the Pax Deorum, right? No. You know, the, the gods in balance and therefore humans in balance. It's quite, it's quite the opposite. That's right. And right? speaking of humans in balance. Yes. It's time for the ads. Let's do it. This episode of Odd Nauseam is brought to you by Ratio Coffee. Dave, I'm very excited. Let me know why. Because this morning I got an email saying that um, my ratio order has shipped. Oh, right. And this what, is... What, what's coming? The the hulking carafe. The flag on? The flag on. Wow. Right. What is this going to do? This is... this is It's gonna ch- it's a game changer. Okay. Right? So um, for many months now, I've had the ratio eight. Mm-hmm. Um, this wonderful machine. The bigger brother of the six? Yes. And I've had the hand-blown glass carafe, which is mm. a beautiful work of art. I've talked about how much I love just kind of... The, the way it pours. The way it pours is, is, is brilliant. Um, but it's also... You have to drink it right away. Well, it does. It's not designed to keep the coffee hot. No, it's, it's designed not. as a beautiful way to serve the to coffee. To serve the coffee, right? Exactly. And so often in the mornings, um, I'm an early, I am an early bird. I get mm-hmm. up very very early, and my with wife, a people face. With a people face, exactly. Right. <laughs> right. And my wife sleeps in a little bit more. Mm-hmm. We both love coffee, um, but it, I also I don't like making you know two pots. It's kind of a pain, right? right? And so um, I often find myself 
very impatient because I'm waiting for my wife right. to wake up. So Come on, wake up, drink right. the coffee. However, when this carafe arrives, oh, it's going to change this. Change everything because yeah. because that's that I, I had one of these carafes with my when I had the six, mm-hmm. and it's astounding how long this keeps the, yep. the the coffee warm. Yep, and there's no radiating heat pad. No, 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 no scorching from below. No Kindle brick. No, it's just the the incredible insulation of this thing that can keep it warm for hours. Yes. Now I have had my hulking flag on the carafe. With the double insulated um, walls, yes, for oh, at least a couple of years now, and I have been brewing directly into that. Yeah, so I don't brew into the borosilicate glass. Do you have one? carafe, which the, the the you you have the glass carafe. Well, I I don't anymore. Oh, you don't because I broke it. Oh, I'm it sorry. It was to an hear accident. That. Now yeah. you made me speak about it <laughs> sorry. on air. Okay, let's let's get let's get past it. In okay. fact, I broke two of them. <laughs> <laughs> now they're very sturdy. Yes, but I'm just very clumsy. So there you go. Okay. Gotcha. Anyway, so hulking you, flag on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Put that in there, as you used to like to say, you can store plutonium in it. Totally. And carry it around the neighborhood. Yeah, it's true. Uh, it keeps the coffee warm for a very long time. The cleanup is easy, right? It's yeah. very, very simple. Yeah, yeah. So I, I can't wait for this thing to arrive. I'm mm-hmm. going to be watching. I got my tracking number, and I'll be... Uh, I'll be Every uh, five minutes, every track, five minutes, track. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so yeah, uh, I can't wait. I love yeah. my machine. Every morning, the perfect right. cup of coffee. Now, these these are not um, cheap machines. These are not. I do say they're inexpensive if you compare the cost to the value. Yes. They, they're still inexpensive because they will last virtually forever. Right. It's it's true. These are uh, things that you could pass down to, mm-hmm. your, to your children if you so if you so wanted. Right. Yep. But first, you have to get one. Yep. And how does our listener do that? They do that by going to ratiocoffee.com. That's R-A-T-I-O coffee.com. You find the machine you, you want, the, the eight or the, the little brother, the six, and you type in this coupon code, A-N-C-O A6. Yes. What does the A stand for? Um, Accessible? Yes. Is that what it was? Okay. Because yeah. right. it's just a one-touch button. It is a one-touch button. And then you got Bloom Brew ready. Ready. That's all there is to it. So check it out. Yes. This episode is also brought to you by Hackett Publishing. Hackett with offices in Indianapolis, Indiana and... And Cambridge, Massachusetts. ...have been offering high-quality, affordable translations to the reading public for now 50... I think it's 51 years, 51 right? years. Yes. It's yes. incredible. Yep. They have a, a tremendous catalog of all things classical and things not classical. For example... Well, they I looking through their catalog, I've seen um, things on Islamic history. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen... Uh, things on, on all kinds of philosophies, not just ancient right. philosophy, but the uh, philosophy of the ages. Right. All kinds of collections. One of the things that I love about Hackett, you can find uh, translation of the same works by different translators. Yes, we so have here with us today yep. in the studio a translation of Ovid's Metamorphoses by the the great Stanley Lombardo, and, and also by uh, Philip Ambrose. That's correct. And so um, we'll, you'll be hearing from the Lombardo translation in the next in the next segment. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I can't say enough uh, enough about these guys. I mean, they would. Uh, the, 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 like Arachne, right? Um, they're very humble about the way they go about business. They don't, yep. they don't toot their own horn, um, and they um, uh, but they have tremendous skill in kind of threading that needle between high quality work and being very very affordable. That's and correct. They don't, but they they do, unlike Arachne, they do not cross the line no. just into bald faced hubris. Into actual hubris, That's right? It. I've had the uh, the privilege of teaching philosophy a couple times at a former institution, mm-hmm. and always teach a little segment on Descartes. So that thin little volume published by Hackett, it's yeah. kind of a aquamarine-ish color, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. High quality translation and very affordable. 
So there's no reason not to purchase something like that. So if our if our audience is interested, Dave, what should they do? They should go to Hackett Publishing, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, HackettPublishing.com, or get your, your AI bot to do it for you, right? <laughs> they can do that now? I don't know. They can know. order your books for you? Uh, okay. There's a lot of tasks I'd like to unload. Gotcha. Right? <laughs> and browse the catalog or have your AI bot do it. And when it comes time to place your order, you need to drop a coupon code into the little grocery basket mm-hmm. spot. What is that code? And that code is AN2023. And what will that get them, Jeff? That will get them two wonderful things. Get them 20% off their entire order. Really? And also free shipping. Check it out. All right, Jeff, as we get back into it, yes. the next part of the episode, we're going to shift gears yep. or grind gears. Yep. We're going to move away from the contest between Arachne and Athena, mm-hmm. uh, wherein the motif is hubris versus nemesis, and yep. move on to Midas, which we could describe as discussing what, what kind of motif. It would be the deadly wish, right. or I sometimes I, I describe it like the be careful what you wish for because you just might get it motif, mm-hmm. of, which is all over Greek myth. Yes. Yeah. So some other notable examples from this story are Phython, right? Yes. Let me drive the chariot of the sun, dad. Right. And be careful what you wish for. Right. Or uh, um, um, Simili. Uh, wanting to see Zeus in his uh, his true form. Oh right. yes, and yeah. when that happens, she is incinerated. Yes, burnt right. to a crisp. Right. There's the other. I'm forgetting the name of, of her. She, she uh, her wish for um, eternal life is granted, but she does, she forgets to kind of mention that she uh, she wants that coupled with eternal youth. Oh, is it's it, it's Aurora wishing yeah. this for Tithonus. That's it. That's it. Yes, exactly. the Trojan prince who becomes the grasshopper. Right. So right. let him live forever, but she forgets to add, but. Don't let him age. Age, right. And so he just shrivels and shrivels and shrivels. Correct. Right. And then in pity, he's turned into a grasshopper. Into a grasshopper. But those are stories for another episode of Vignettes. Exactly. Today yes. we're dealing with... With uh, with King Midas. With King Midas. Now the setup is that he happens to rescue for uh, Bacchus, someone who's very dear to Bacchus. The yeah. only father figure... Wow, I mess fogger figure <laughs> that Bacchus has ever had, which is... Uh, Silenus. Silenus. Now, yeah. Silenus or the Silene, these are odd characters. These are kind of these these uh, kind of drunken satyrs. That yeah, I, I kind of... They're kind of like Santa Claus, right? Because they're old and bearded. Yes. But their jolliness comes from imbibing way too much alcohol. Yes. And they're lecherous, they're lecherous and, and dangerous. Right. And so, you know, um, you know, if you're a woman in particular, you know, right. uh, take care if you wander into the woods. That's and, correct. They they're will, very dangerous. They'll chase you. Yes. Right. But somehow, um, Silenus here, uh, he's picked out from among the group, I guess. And uh, he's very much loved by Bacchus as a substitute father. Mm-hmm. And he gets lost. And when he's lost, Midas somehow finds him. I don't know if he's putting up posters on telephone poles or, you know, if he recruits John Walsh. Oh, right. Uh, um, uh, what was this thing? America's Most, most wanted. wanted. Yes, of course. Right, right. But somehow Midas uh, succeeds in reuniting Silenus and Bacchus. Okay. As a reward, he's given his one wish. And his one wish, is, so we're just going to outline the story, is to have a golden touch. Yes. Seems like, you know, uh, a good thing to ask for. Everything you touch turns to gold. Right. But I mean, perhaps are, not really thinking everything no. through. No. What are the candidates? What, what are the alternatives? Everything you touch turns to chocolate? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That wouldn't, that wouldn't be bad. That would get old really quickly. Though. I think so, too. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, is it, does Ovid preface this at all by, by saying, like, Ovid, you know, Midas was known for his his greed or anything uh, like that? Or just this kind of comes out of nowhere? Or Well, he was already very wealthy. Okay. And so there's some kind of avarice lurking in his heart. Gotcha. But this has been the dream of all kings, right? Is the kind of alchemy to be able to turn any substance into gold. This is right. what, um, 
what's the guy who spins the straw with the girl with the oh, long hair? Um, Rumpelstiltskin. Rumpelstiltskin, yes, exactly. Okay. Same kind of idea. Gotcha. So I think we should start, as we tell this story, with a little bit of the Latin, and uh, then maybe you can read to us some of the Lombardo translation. Let's do it. So this is from Book 11, lines 85 and following. I'm going to read a little bit of the Latin. Nexaris hoc bacest ipsos quoque deserer agros, cum quecuro meliora sui venete temoli, pacto lan quepetit quam vis non ardres illo, tempora nec cardris erat in vidiosus harenis. Hunc ad suete cohors satiri bacai que frequentant, at silenus abest titubantaninisque merdros Oops, meroque. Ruricolae capere friges winctumque coronis, adredegem duxe remedan qui thracius orfaus. There we have the name Midas right there. And mm-hmm. the last one, orgia tradiderat cumque cropia el molpo. All right. Let me give us uh, Lombardo's translation of these lines. But not even this was enough for Bacchus. He left those fields with a worthier retinue and made for the vineyards near his own waters, the Timolus River and the Pactolus. Although the latter was not yet a golden stream envied for his precious sand. So here's Ovid kind of showing off some of his geographical knowledge. Right? Yes, and foreshadowing too, right? Yes. It was not yet uh, envied for its golden stream. Right. right? His usual crew, satyrs and bacchants, were with him in droves, but Salinas was not there. Some Phrygian peasants had captured him while he was stumbling along under the influence of old age and wine. They bound him with wreaths and led him to Midas. Deadly combination, right? Yes. Old, old age, age and wine. wine. Yeah, look out. Uh, led them to, to Midas, their king, whom Thracius Orpheus had taught, along with Eumolpus, the rituals of Bacchus. Hmm. All right. Okay. So that's the setup. Yes. Right? That's the setup. This is how Midas succeeds in rescuing Silenus and restoring him to Bacchus, his adoptive son or yes. foster son. Exactly. All right, uh, more Lombardo here. When the eleventh dawn banished the ranking stars, the king rode merrily to the Lydian fields and gave Silenus back to the youthful god who was once his ward. Bacchus was happy to have his foster father back, and as a reward granted Midas whatever he wanted, a pleasing gift, but not one that the king would use use at all well. Grant, he said, that whatever I touch will turn to gold. Hmm. The god nodded and gave him the harm he asked for. Sorry he hadn't, be seen, hadn't seen fit to request something better. So what's hap- what happens now? Well, now he ends up kind of like, he tests it out. He's not, he doesn't really believe, could this really be true? Right. And now he starts grabbing things, right? <laughs> and he's really excited at first, but then quite, he quickly realizes, this is, uh, this is going to be my downfall. And in fact, this is, is kind of played for comedy, I would say. Yes. If I can read a little bit of the um, Ambrose translation sure. here. Uh, then Lieber nodded assent to the choice, bestowed the dangerous gift, etc. The Beresintian hero, that's Midas, departs content and happy in the evil thing and tests the veracity of the promise by touching things in turn. And scarcely believing his eyes from the lofty oak did not draw down a branch of green, the branch had turned to gold. He picks up a rock from the ground. The rock also paled with gold. He also touches a clod. At his powerful touch, the clod becomes a heavy mass. He broke off heads of Ceres ripening grain. The harvest was golden. Ah, it's, no. a, it's a pun, you see? It's a <laughs> yeah. golden harvest? Yes, I got it. I like a good pun, don't you? I do. Okay. Yeah. Right. And then, he's, um, then he goes on, he picks an apple. Yes. Yeah, read gold. some of the Lombardo, sure, if you says, would, please. Uh, he picked an apple from a tree. You would think that it came from the Garden of the Hesperides. Uh, with their golden apples, right? Yes. If he brushed his fingers on the soaring columns, the columns gleamed. Uh, I thought this was nice. When he washed his hands, the water could dilute a Danai. So she's the one who was, you know, impregnated by Zeus in the form of a golden rain. Yes. And so like uh, the the water turns to gold. Mm-hmm. His mind could hardly contain his hopes, imagining that everything was gold. 
Deliriously happy, he sat down at a table on which his servants had set up an elaborate feast. Uh-oh. Right. Now, okay. Piled high with food and not lacking for roasted grain. But then in truth, when his right hand had touched the gifts of Ceres, the gifts of Ceres grew hard. So this is how, you know, frosted flakes were invented, I think. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, I'm thinking a pair of rubber gloves could have maybe... Yes. Could have been a... Those, those um, what those... Those, uh, they're not nylon. What are they? They're latex gloves. Latex gloves. Right. Exactly. Very thin, you know, using for cleaning things up and so forth. Right. Okay. Maybe not available in antiquity, but probably not. Some kind of ancient form of would have, admit. Would have been helpful. Yes. Would right. have been helpful. Or when his hungry teeth attempted to bite into the food, the teeth only pressed yellowed plates. Ah, so even his teeth have the golden touch. Right. Maybe he was when he, maybe when he was thinking when he when he asked for the um, the wish, he was thinking anything I touch with my hands. Right. But he, he, again, with that, like the problem. Oh, you gotta you gotta specify your wish. That's correct. Right. You have to ask the gods for very specific, you know, rules of engagement, a triplicate form. Yeah. Right. Like buying a house. I thought it was an interesting detail that that Bacchus grants him his wish, but we we get inside his head. He says, he says, okay, you can have it, but he's kind of he's disappointed that, that he didn't ask for something right. wiser. It, yeah, exactly. Bacchus didn't say, you want to rethink that? No, it mm. it's kind of I mean, it, that's sometimes kind of the rules of the game. Whatever comes out of your mouth, that's what you're going to get. Yes. Can you read through some of the other things that he touched and how uh, deleterious were the consequences? Sure. He said, water mingled with wine. The wine of Bacchus, who gave him his gift, flowed into his mouth as molten gold. This was an alarming turn of events. Rich and yet wretched, he yearns to flee his wealth, and he hates what he asked for. No amount of food can relieve his hunger. His throat burns with thirst, and he is, through his own fault, tortured by gold. And lifting his hands and glistening arms to heaven, he cried, Forgive me, Father Linnaeus, for I have sinned. Have mercy upon me and save me from this glittering curse. Mm. Now, this is interesting, is that you know, if we compare this to the Arachne episode, this, of course, is our words that Arachne never speaks. Right. Right. It suggests that if Arachne had said, You're right. You're the you're the you're the woman, Minerva. Right. Um, everything would have been okay. Here, Minias, uh, sorry, Minias, uh, Midas, Midas. Midas breaks down and he asks for forgiveness. Right. Yep. Now the contrast here, a nice contrast I sometimes brought out when I taught myth at that former institution, yeah. is with the story of King Solomon in First uh, Kings chapter three. Okay. Where the Lord appears to him in a dream and says, "Ask for me whatever you want me to give you." All right. And Solomon famously does not go with the deadly wish motif. Right. Right. He asks for wisdom yes. uh, to govern God's people. And yes. God says, as a consequence of your you know, wisdom in asking for the right thing, I'm also going to make you wealthy. Right. But I'm going to give you um, the wisdom that you asked for. That's interesting. But it's also interesting that, you know, in the story of Solomon, you know, his, his tremendous wealth um, is becomes kind of part of his own. Downfall, it does. Right? Yes. It leads him to idolatry with, you know, yes. uh, the women of the nations that he takes as his wives yes. and concubines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how does Midas get out of this terrible fix? I think it's because he breaks down and he says, I'm, he says, I did something terrible and forgive me. And in Lombardo's translation, the next line is, the gods are kind. Hmm. Which, maybe? Not all of not them. O- not all of them and not all the time. <laughs> no. But it says, because he confessed his sin, Bacchus restored to him what he was before and rescinded, rescinded the pledged gift. Yes. So what does he do then? He has to go and wash off yes. some of the golden touch. And where does he go? He goes to um, the, the river, which is, um, it comes to be called Xanthus. That's the, correct. The Yellow River. The yeah. Yellow River of uh, that features very prominently in Herodotus's history. Right. You know, the war between the Greeks and the Persians, and it's famous for its gold. Yes. So we have yet another etiology. Right, right. This is why the river is uh, is so laden with gold. Yeah. So, I mean, you start to see kind of a rhythm and almost a formula to these stories, mm-hmm. right? It, it's a, you know, human makes a terrible mistake. 
Um, sometimes they're punished in a very clever kind of way. In this case, Midas escapes that that judgment. And then there's kind of a, and this is why this mountain looks this way. Right. This is why spiders are the way they Which are. Which is right? kind of an odd um, ending in some ways to, to turn it in an etiological direction. Do you find it kind of an anticlimax in some way? No, it's just unexpected. We're, I think we're expecting some really strong moral point to be made. Yeah. But the moral point is more contained in the narrative itself. Yeah. Offit doesn't have to at the end say, and so you should be careful what you ask for. Right, right, right. It's That would be a little trite. Yes. He goes in another direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here's Ambrose. The king approached the ordered water. The golden touch imbued the river and receded from the human body into the stream. But even now, from the seeds received from the ancient vein, the fields are hard and pale with clods made wet by gold. Hmm. Nice. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm coming more and more to appreciate Ambrose. I think, you know, by and large, I'm more of a Lombardo guy. Well, we've been trumpeting Lombardo all through the translation and, and the series on the Aeneid. Right. But there's there's something, there's a, there's a, there's a poetic uh, finesse in Ambrose that I, that I really like. Yes. Yeah. Now, yeah. the story goes on from here, and we're going to have to leave Ovid, I think, and wrap up our episode. Yeah. But the story goes on, and Midas becomes a contest, uh, a judge in a musical contest. Yes. Between Pan and Apollo. That's right. And uh, that's a great story, which includes some asinine behavior at the end. Indeed, indeed. But But that will be be a tale for another episode. Another episode. Yeah. So, Dave, we got to get out of here. Indeed. We're up against it. Um, Before we do, tell us a little bit about the Moss Method, LLPSI. What's going on there? Sure. So, just this morning, we met for our weekly Moffis Hours. Nice. Now, they have been somewhat interrupted because of my travel schedule, but we're back on track. Excellent. We met for an hour. We read from... um, some Greek, the story of uh, uh, Penelope and Odysseus, an adapted prose version for students. Uh, just signed up some more students this week for the Greek course. Great. Go to mossmethod.com. Mm-hmm. Check out my course. It's got four modules. Um, it's, a, it's a highly, carefully, another adverb kind of thing. <laughs> Put together uh, with precision and diligence, I hope. It will take you from neophyte to... Erudite. Yes, you will learn a lot of Greek. Now, as I, as I like to say, there may be better programs, but I believe the combination of the cost and the level of expertise and thoroughness is pretty much unmatched. Indeed. And if they go to mossmethod.com, there's lots of free videos they That's can check right. out. And so you, um, you, can, it, yeah. you, can, you can jump in with a good idea of kind of what you're in for. That's correct. And right. it's asynchronous, so you can start anytime. Fantastic. Self-paced, expert, accessible. Good. I also have the Latin program, mm-hmm. latinperdiem.com slash... L-L-P-S-I, yes. right. So this is uh, Hans Orberg's Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata. Uh, signed up a student just this morning. Um, it's another excellent program, I believe, where I'm teaching four students, and you get to watch the 33 videos, plus the 25 accessory videos, plus audio recordings, and tests, and quizzes, and lots of materials. And once a week, you meet with me for an office hour. So both of these programs, they have direct access to you. That's correct. Not just a flunky or a lackey. Fantastic. And that's at latinperdiem.com. So Jeff, whom yep. do we need to thank? As always, Mishka, our engineer, our editor, uh, who turns these things around so quickly and so professionally. So I uh, can't thank her enough. Uh, how about the, who, these, who are these blistering guitarists that we're hearing Yeah, here? so we got Scott Van Zen, yes. who plays the intro and the outro music from a song called, I don't think I've ever... Uh, mentioned this on the air. Stay by my side All right. is the name of the song. Nice. Can can compose the drums and the bass and such, and plays the rhythm guitar. Uh, Scott plays the lead guitar with all that whittly diddly. Yeah, That's so nice. Uh, Ken plays the bumper music. 
um, for the ads and uh, very generous, very grateful for their contribution. What a couple of talented dudes. Absolutely. Man. Unbelievable. Yeah. And so, hey, hey um, again, a reminder, if you want a, a shout out, we'd love to hear from you. If you got questions, ideas for, for an episode, uh, don't hesitate to drop us a note. You can write to Dave. Dave at adnauseum.com. Don't forget that V. Or Jeff at adnauseum.com. Do not forget the V in the email address. Yes. Uh, go to adnauseum.com. Uh, check out our, our Lurch with Merch section. Pick up a t-shirt, a yep. hat, a mug. we got a lot of stuff there, a little bit of which trickles back to us. Yeah. And uh, the proceeds, I mean, and helps keep this podcast afloat. Yes. Now, Dave, next week, we, we did not talk about this, but nope. how would you feel about doing... Uh, I'm against it. Your, your, use, use your illusion too. Oh, week. you mean the pop culture, yes. the pop music. Right. That's right in your wheelhouse, yeah. as they say. We yeah, I'm up for it. All right, let's, let, let's do that. We got a lot of strikes when we tried to put that thing on YouTube. <laughs> That's right, exactly. Right. But I mean, we're, we're bringing this music to potentially a new audience. Exactly. And this is really where you are in your element, and I just kind of sit back and you know, kind of fire pot shots at various, uh, you're, yeah, the, you're, you're in your wheelhouse doing that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so we're going to use uh, we're going to go with use your illusion part two. Yes. Episode 124. And yep. I believe Jeff, you have our gustatory parting shot. Yes. This comes from uh, someone I've never heard of, but I love the name Lewis Grizzard. I have read one of his books. Oh really? Yeah. As okay. it turns out a long time ago, he's a Southern writer. Okay. He writes about travel and food, just kind of Americana. Gotcha. It's kind of nice. Yeah, 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 I don't yeah. think I'd read one of his books now probably probably, but I really enjoyed it at the time. Okay. Well, he says, uh, I love this and I I agree wholeheartedly. He says, never order barbecue in a place that also serves quiche. Good advice. Very good advice. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.